welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We're continuing in the Gospel of Luke this morning, and uh, we're going to do that in uh, Luke chapter 22. The next section of Scripture we're going to explore is verses 7 through 13. So let us hear the Word of God and prepare our hearts for the preaching. Luke writes, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. This is God's holy word. And it has a message about his greatness within it. May the Holy Spirit break it to us in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Well, when you teach verse by verse, that means you face every text. You don't hop, skip through a chapter. You don't preach uh, your favorites. And uh, as, as I teach verse by verse through this great gospel, I come to a passage that uh, a lot of people might say is just a tri- trivial text. I mean, this is, uh, this is a, a little story that's placed in the scripture about an everyday errand, about preparing a dinner. And uh, it, it, it's, it's about a crosstown errand. Uh, now, it does have some odd twists to it. This is a little bit like a, a segment out of a Jason Bourne movie, you know? Do you get that feel? Jesus kind of tells them who, who their contact will be and, and uh, what the cue will be and where to follow them. It's got a little bit of that, of that feel to it. But even that, what could be here? For the Christ follower, why was this included in Scripture? And how does it fit into the narrative of this chapter, which is a dark one? It's a narrative about betrayal and false trials and all kinds of other things. Well, in reality, this small little section where Jesus sends two of his disciples out to prepare the Passover and to go through this arcane way of finding where it's going to be, It occurs in the middle of what I told you last time was evil's worst plot. It was one of the most wicked days in history. It was the 24 hours surrounding the the decision of Judas to betray Jesus. And we studied that last time in verses 1 to 6, where we saw an evil plot that was formed. And this occurs in the middle of that story. As I explain how the text opens to you, I hope you'll see it. So this mundane event occurs in the middle of of evil's worst day of this unfolding plot. 
and it actually serves to preserve the plan of God, and it actually also portrays the absolute control that God has over the smallest details that make up all events and how he actually controls and defeats the the strategies of evil as his perfect plans unfold. All of that is actually what's, what's behind this kind of trivial story. It's about the sovereignty of God. Now, sovereignty is a big word. It's a theologian's word. It talks about God's total authority over all people and all events. He is the sovereign king of the universe. But in our language, we would just simply say this is about the fact that God is in control of all things and all events. Yes, he's even in in control over wickedness, its plans and its outcomes. So it's a story about God's very specific control of these events as I'm going to explain it. The details matter in this little story. And I hope it's a great encouragement to you because I'll tell you what, the sovereignty of God is one of the most encouraging dimensions, if I can use my popular word, (laughs) of who God is that sustains me in my Christian life. The, the, The encouragement I get is not only that God is in control, but that he's a good God. Lorraine Butner was a theologian of the past, and he put it this way. He said, although the sovereignty of God is universal and absolute, it is not the sovereignty of blind power. In other words, when we, know, we say that God is sovereign over all things, he's not some faceless force. All apologies to Star Wars fans. He's not some blank force that simply controls things. He's not like an endless cycle of karma. He, he's not that way. Dr. Boatner says, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, his sovereign power is coupled with infinite wisdom and holiness and love. And this is the dimension of the doctrine when properly understood that's most comforting to us. Who would not prefer to have his life affairs in the hands of a God of infinite power and wisdom and holiness and love rather than to have them left to fate or chance or cold natural law, or to to short-sighted and perverted humans. People say, I don't like the thought of a God that controls everything. Really? Well, what are your alternatives, Dr. Butner says? If you reject God's sovereignty, you should consider what the alternatives are. If God's not sovereign and in perfect control, then things are left to fate, or chance, or some blank laws of the universe, or worse yet, to the hands of sinful, corrupt people. No, I'm glad God's in control, but he's not just a faceless power. He's a God of love and wisdom. And he's laying all these things out to achieve a perfect plan. And we'll see that in this story. So it's all about God being in control. Now, as I said, uh, it was set in an evil time. We saw last time that beginning in verse 1, an evil plot was, was put together. It involved wicked leaders. That's verses 1 to 2. The, the Pharisees and Sadducees who had had enough of Jesus and his growing popularity and his, his, his taking apart of their falsehoods. And they knew that, that their power was threatened and they had to get Jesus out of the way. So they were meeting and, at the house of the high priest 
and, and trying to come up with a way to take Jesus when there were no crowds around, when they could do it privately, and then just quietly take him out of the way and then take him out completely, take his life. Into that plotting meeting, a door, uh, there's a knock at the door, and Satan had entered, verse 3, into Judas. And Judas desired to break his ties with Jesus. He was totally uh, dejected over the fact that Jesus was not the triumphing king that he thought he was going to be, giving Judas a place in his kingdom. Judas was done with Jesus, and on his way of abandoning Jesus, he wanted to, to, to make a little money out of this disappointment. And so the, the enemy puts into the mind of Judas this plot to go and give Jesus up to those that he knew wanted him. And so the answer to the, to the plan of the Pharisees knocks on the door and the person of Judas Iscariot, and they make a deal for 30 pieces of silver. The, the most wicked day in history, perhaps, came to a close that night. That was Wednesday night in the middle of Passion Week. That was what ended at verse 6. Jesus consented. And look at this in verse 6. This is important. He sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Why is that important? Because that's the context in which verse 7 dawns. Verse 7 is probably the next morning. In my opinion, verse 6, verses 1 to 6, happened Wednesday night. Jesus was out at the Mount of Olives again with his disciples. The Pharisees were in, in the city of Jerusalem conferring together. Judas came to them. The, the, the betrayal pathway was designed in, in, in Jerusalem that night as Jesus and the disciples were on the Mount of Olives. Judas leaves. Where does he go? He goes back to the Mount of Olives and sneaks back in among the disciples. Where else would he have gone? But he now has this plan in his mind. And he's watching now and listening for any hint that he has of, of the activity of Jesus, where Jesus is going to be going in the next 24 hours, where Jesus will be alone or just with his disciples. And when he finds out what that would be, his plan was to get back to the, to the religious leaders tell them where Jesus was going to be, and Jesus would be arrested. So verse 7 is the dawn of the next day. Judas has this plot in his mind. He snuck back up to the mountain of Olives to be with the disciples after he makes his deal with the devil. And now verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Thursday morning dawned. And now Judas is looking for his opportunity. You have to understand that, and then this passage makes sense. There's two things that I want to tell you that this passage tells us about God, and they're built out of the text. The first is that this story shows us that God is in control of the satanic plots of people. God is in control of the satanic plots of people, We've already seen the plot develop and this, this strange assignment that Jesus gives to these two disciples actually foils the plot that Judas had prepared, at least for that day. So let me talk about it in four ways. First of all, let me talk a little bit about the dilemma that, that both Judas and Jesus faced. The dilemma that Judas faced was he had to find a time when Jesus was alone or just with the disciples that was safe enough for the priests to come and take him. 
The problem was Jesus was the most popular human being on the planet at that time. And crowds surrounded him day and into the evenings. Now, the dilemma that Jesus has is that the day that dawned on Thursday was a very unique day. It says that the day of unleavened bread came on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. What was this all about? Well, the Passover feast was emerging. And that night, Jesus was committed with his disciples to celebrate Passover just with them. Passover was a a feast that was celebrated by families or small groups of families. It wasn't celebrated in the great temple with thousands. It was celebrated in the evening in homes or meeting rooms with a, a handful or a dozen or two people. That's all. And that's where where Jesus was going to be celebrating the Passover. The Passover was the greatest feast in the Jewish uh, culture. It was one of the three great feasts that God set for the people. And it was designed to remind them of the time when God passed over the nation of Israel during the time of, of judging the nation of Egypt and setting Israel free from bondage. You remember the story that death angel was going to come, going to take the life of every firstborn child as a judgment upon Egypt. But God God told Israel, take an take a, 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 a unblemished lamb, sacrifice it, cut its throat, pour out the blood, and take the blood and spread it over the doorposts of your homes, stay in your houses, and when the death angel sees the blood on, the, on your houses, he will pass over you and not take your firstborn. There's so much imagery there of the fact that a sacrifice of an innocent one had to be made so that guilty people would be passed over by the judgment of God. It's an image of the coming salvation work that God would do through one lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Passover festival was something that was instituted by God in the Old Testament and the Jews needed to practice it each and every year. And they did so by gathering in a home by getting a lamb several days before or or that day and then taking that lamb to the temple, the lamb's throat would be cut and the the blood would be shed on and put at the, the base of the temple and then the lamb itself would be taken back to their house and it would be prepared and roasted as an evening meal. There would also be different points in that meal where they would commemorate what we know as the Exodus. They would eat unleavened bread. There would be different cups of wine that they would drink together to commemorate different ways in which God delivered Israel so over a thousand years prior to that. And all of that would take place each Passover night and it would be led by a member of the family. In this case, it would have to be led by Jesus because he was a rabbi. He was the teacher. So this was a festival that Jesus had to keep. He not only had to lead it as the rabbi and the teacher of this group of men, but the Bible also said he had to keep it to fulfill all righteousness. The only way Jesus could go to the cross and be a perfect sacrifice for you is if he perfectly pleased God every moment of his life. And God had said, keep my Passover. And so to be pleasing to God and to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus had to keep every part of the law. And keeping part of the law was keeping the Passover. So it was a destination Jesus had to arrive at. Now, not only did Jesus know this, but Judas knew this. Judas knew what day was dawning in verse 7. 
Judas knew that, the, that there were, there were, they were going to have to go somewhere that night just as a group of men and celebrate the Passover. And Bible commentators look at this passage and conclude that's what was going on in the mind of Judas. In verse 6, he was looking for an opportunity. And in verse 7, he thought he was going to find it. All he had to do was hang around that morning and listen to where Jesus told the guys Passover was going to be celebrated. Find the address, slip out unnoticed, head back down into the city, tell the leaders the address, the Pharisees and their, and their police force, and sit back and wait for the room to be raided that night. That's all he had to do. And so Judas was listening as the day began. In times past, Jesus must have told the disciples, we're going to celebrate Passover at such and such a place. John, the disciple, was the son of a wealthy family. John's mother supported Jesus financially, along with many other uh, women, particularly, who saw to the physical needs of Jesus. It's possible that in the two prior Passovers in his three-year ministry, the disciples, they had gone to John's spacious home there in Jerusalem and kept Passover, or the home of someone else. But now, today, it would not be that way. Instead of Jesus saying, well, hey, we're going to do Passover and it'll be at John's house again, guys. Don't be late. Or such and such, a person has come forward and they want to invite us to their upper room for Passover this year. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Instead, Jesus tells Peter and John, he brings them to them to himself, verse 8, and he says, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. But there was something missing. What was missing was they didn't know where, where he had chosen. And what you see unfold here is that Jesus arranges things so that the very people he's arranging it through don't know what's going on. You watch this and he arranges it so that nobody knows where the Passover meal is going to be held except Almighty God in the person of Jesus Christ. This is all an assignment that's done so perfectly that even the people doing it don't understand what they're doing or where they're going. This is the Jason Bourne effect of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just think it's awesome. Let me go into the design a little bit. That's the dilemma. Let me talk about the design. He sets up the location, but he hides the details. He sends them out, and he sends them out to a place that they don't understand the location of, and there's this supernatural pathway in which he leads them all out. Now, you might wonder, why in the world did all this have to happen? And Because... Christ was in charge of the timing and the details of his death, nobody else. And the, the timing had to follow the plan that he and the Father had for the, the way that Jesus was going to get to that cross. Remember, he said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. And he was in charge of every moment. And Jesus was not going to be betrayed that night. He was going to be betrayed the following in, in Gethsemane, the following morning. There were a lot of other things that had to take place that night. He had to fulfill that Passover because he was the Passover. He had to be there that night. He wasn't going to let Judas disrupt the party until Jesus had conducted the Passover himself because he is the Passover. 
Then Jesus transformed the Passover from the Passover of the Jews, and he introduced something new, the new covenant. And he transformed the Passover from its old context to something new called communion. And he introduced a new bread and a new cup that talked about his coming sacrifice that was good for all of eternity and for anyone that tasted of it. He had to put that in place. Then he had to give some extensive teaching. You can read about it in John chapters 13 through 16 to his disciples to prepare them for the dark days that were immediately ahead when he was betrayed and when he was crucified and when he had risen and what was going to happen and how they, what they needed to know to get through that. And then finally, he needed to pray over his men in John 17 and call down the power of the Father over the future of the church. All of that had to happen that night, and no penny ante betrayer was going to get in the way of it because Jesus Christ was in control of the hours and the times of his death. He would allow himself to be betrayed, and he would allow himself to be falsely tried, and he would allow himself to be cruelly tortured, and he would allow himself to be nailed to a cross, but in his timing, not anyone else's. And all this had to be fulfilled Right down to the point that in the final hour, 3 p.m. on Friday, not Thursday, he would call out, it is finished, at the very same time that the Passover lamb was sacrificed in the temple, in the city. All of this was in the plan of God. And so it had to be preserved, you see. So now we'll get to the details. Hang with me. We're going to run through this quickly. The details of this assignment. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Judas listening in the room. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They asked him the obvious question, where will you have us prepare it? They were expecting John's house again or so-and-so's house again. Jesus doesn't tell them. He knows Judas is brooding just a couple shoulders away listening. Jesus says, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. That's all Judas got to hear. And Peter and John leave. Judas couldn't follow because he would have blown his cover. Come on, you spy movie people. So Judas has to sit there, and he's kept completely clueless. But just in case Judas would have pulled John and, 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 Peter, and Peter aside afterwards and say, by the way, guys, where is this going to be happening? Where would you guys end up going? They don't know either. They get led to a place they've never been to meet a guy they've never met, to set up in a room they've never stepped foot in. And in verse 11, it says, they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. The implication of the text is they never went back because there was a lot of preparing to do. They had to get the lamb. They had to take it to the temple. It had to be, it had to be sacrificed. Then they had to take it back. They had to prepare the lamb. They had to cook the lamb. They had to get all the wine from the, from the bazaar. They had to get the unleavened bread ready and everything else. And that's what they did. And then Jesus himself led the disciples when Jesus was ready, including Judas, fit to be tied into that room that Jesus had chosen. And once they got there, Judas couldn't leave because he would have betrayed himself. And we know he was a coward. 
And so Judas had to sit through most of that upper room experience until Jesus himself blew his cover and said, one of you shall betray me. And Judas dipped his bread in the bowl with Christ and Christ looked at him and said, I know all about you. What you're going to do, go and do quickly. Who's in control? The Lord Jesus. He's in control of all the satanic plots of people. It's an amazing little story. You've got to think about how supernatural this is. Jesus controlled every event. He sovereignly moved in the minds and the hearts of people. They didn't know where they were going. He says, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. That's miraculous on two counts. Number one, there were tens and tens of thousands of people moving into Jerusalem that morning. There were up to a million people or more that came in addition to the normal population. And they were all flowing into the city from where they had camped on the hillsides outside the city the night before. And they're going to meet one guy whom they've never met whose name they do not know, whose face they would not recognize. It's a little bit like you being told, hey, we've got a ticket in the skybox for you yeah, down there to see the Seahawks. Well, how do I get my ticket? Oh, you just show up. Just walk, into the, walk in from the parking lot and somebody will meet you. Excuse me? It's humanly impossible, not with Jesus. So they go because they're used to this. When they get there, another miracle is it's a man carrying a water pot. If you know anything about biblical life, men didn't carry water pots. It was a woman's role. Don't be offended. But but a woman usually would be assigned to go and and carry the water from the well, and the men would go to the bazaar, and he'd be carrying a couple wine, big, big sacks of wine over his shoulders for Passover. His job was different, but that day somehow... Christ inspired a master to say, we need some water. Can it be gotten? And there's no female servant here. Well, you'll have to do it, male servant. And he goes out. And he has to stop and meet just the right two guys coming in among 10,000 others at just the right moment, at just the right place. He can't take a wrong turn, go down a wrong street. He can't stop and talk to a friend of his that he suddenly meets. He can't miss the timing by one second. And he walks up to where he's supposed to be, and two guys walk up to him where they're supposed to be, and for some supernatural reason, they know they're supposed to meet. Their eyes connect. The guy turns to his left and he walks back to the master's house where he served and these two guys follow him wordlessly, silently. They get to the door. He goes in. They boldly follow. They've never been to the place. They don't know who owns it. They say, who owns this place? They're told. And they go up and say, the teacher has said that he needs this place. Where, where is the room? What does the text say? The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? What does that tell us? This man knew who the teacher was. The teacher. Jesus of Nazareth. What does that tell us? The place was owned by a follower of Jesus all ordained by the master himself. The room was furnished, and of course they were invited in. It was a supernaturally guided encounter. That's how it all went. What kind of a difference can this make in your understanding of God? Well, two things. Number one, it says that Jesus was really God. (laughs) Wasn't he? He controlled events. He knew people's minds. He controlled the passage of time. He controlled every dimension 
of what was going on around him as almighty God. But it also says he was fully human because here is Christ so poor that he has no room of his own in which to celebrate the Passover feast of which he is the true object. So he humbled himself for us to to the point where he has to ask for a borrowed room. But at the same time, he's God almighty and he arranges the details of how it's revealed. God, man. Perfect God, perfect man. But it also reveals, like I said, Jesus is in control of all things, even even the elements where wickedness is on the run, on the march, rather. You know, that was a dark chapter, like I said. You might say, well, Satan was certainly in control of that, they know. Well, the wicked rulers were in control of that way, they know. Judas was making all the wheels turn that day. What a horrible man. No. God Almighty controlled everything. Even though all these people gave in to their wickedness and they will be eternally responsible for what they chose to do. This is a mystery. The the wicked choices of people, but the overruling sovereignty of God over even those things. How do you explain that, Pastor? Let's get to heaven and find out. But I am so glad that my God is in good control even over wicked events and he uses all things together for my good. And he did it that saving day. Let's close with the second thing. I mean, those are the deeper details to a story you might have always wondered about. God controlled every one of those details. But he was also in control of something else. Here's the second principle, and I close with it. God is also in control of the saving plan of the ages. Because, you see, Passover had to happen. The word Passover is found four times in the passage. Passover is critical to the narrative. Two things. First of all, the design that was in place there. You see, uh, this is all something that God ordained to take place, and, and uh, Jesus was going to make that Passover. Nothing was going to stop him. Matthew has a different account of this. And in Matthew 26, verse 18, there's a word added to what Peter and John were to tell the man that owned that house. It says in verse 18, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. There's the control of Christ, the commitment of Christ. But he says, my time is near. What is that talking about? What time? It was the hour of his final passion, which Jesus inaugurated himself. He was in in control of his time. It was the time when the great purpose of his life arrived, to give his life as a ransom for many. And it was all divinely appointed. It was all operating according to what what had to happen. And Jesus was going to keep that Passover because it was going to be the last Passover. People wonder, should Christians celebrate Passover today? Well, you might participate in it as a curiosity, but that last Passover was celebrated on this earth that night. Something new was inaugurated, a new covenant. We now, as Christians, recognize communion. But the Passover lamb was there that night because he was the one that Passover pointed to for over a thousand years. Every time a Passover lamb was sacrificed from the very early days of Moses all the way through the time of Jesus, it was done as 
as a symbol of a real ultimate lamb that was coming. Those lambs that they sacrificed for a thousand years couldn't fully cover their sin. That's why they had to do it every year. But one was coming who was the ultimate lamb of God, and he came that night, and he held Passover with his men, and then he said, the blood I'm going to shed tomorrow will change everything. The blood I'm going to shed tomorrow covers sin forever. All of that was in control by God and his saving plan moved forward. Put it this way. The Old Testament, the question was, where is the lamb that's coming? We're sacrificing lamb after lamb. It can cover sin, but it can't take away sin. Where is the lamb? Suddenly the New Testament arrives and John the Baptist calls out and he points at Jesus and he says, behold the lamb. Old Testament, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? New Testament begins, behold the lamb. And then in eternity, what are we going to be singing? Worthy is the Lamb. That's the whole story. And God wasn't going to let it be derailed by the wickedness of man or the plans of Satan because he had you in mind and you on his saving heart. Wow. Hmm. Well, what's the difference that that makes? It just wonder, just a reminder, reminder that that day evil lost in time and on the cross it lost forever. You now can be fully and totally saved and redeemed by the work of Christ on that cross. No wickedness conquered it that day. No wickedness will conquer it in the forever day. So my question is, what will you do with all of that? Well, certainly, if you don't know Christ today, turn from your wickedness. And come to your Savior. But if you do know Christ, proclaim his death through the participation in communion. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians, uh, the, the great passage in which Paul described communion, he said in verse 26, when we do this, now that Jesus inaugurated something new, Passover looked to someone that was coming, communion looks back to someone who came. Passover was temporary communion is into eternity. And so every time we take the Lord's cup and, and bread, we're proclaiming to ourselves and to those around us that his death is sufficient. <laughs> 